Good morning. This is lesson 35, one more lesson to go next week in the book of Hebrews, and we're in chapter 13, verses 9 through 16, and I have titled this message, Outside the Camp. It's not a novel title, you know, from the text, but it's a good one. We live in a culture of comparison, and and, uh, you know, for those of you who know me well, one of my favorite lines from Crocodile Dundee is that time where he's in New York City and uh, uh, some thugs come out of the darkness and they pop a switchblade open and he looks at them and he says, that's not a knife, and he pulls this huge sword out, this is a knife. And, and uh, I, if I needed some other illustration of that, we were at a, a dinner, uh, some of our elders with the elders at, at McKinney Bible Church. And did you see that sign on the coffee, Steve? Yeah, I thought you would. Well, anyway, they had two pots of coffee there, and one said, sissy coffee. <laughs> and the other said, manly coffee. And, and so I asked one of the guys, okay, who is doing this? It was Craig, of course. And, and uh, there again, he was sort of saying, that's not coffee. This is coffee. And, and it really relates, I think, to our text and to the situation of the Hebrew believers in the sense that they felt they had the big knife. They had the manly coffee, as it were, with their religion because they had all of the, the external... Uh, manifestations of, of, of greatness, it seemed, and significance. They had a majestic temple, uh, that, that they would go to. They had a, a, a great liturgy and priests and, and all of the garb and the sacrifices and a whole system that went with that. And they looked down their noses at those who departed from, from Judaism and, and, and embraced Jesus Christ. And they met in, in, in homes and they had no great priesthood. They had no fancy, uh, temple in which to meet. It was very down home and, and in their minds, plain Jane. And, and so they, they, they played that up, I believe, with those who would depart. So, when I talk about the perks of Judaism, I'm talking about that, that system that one entered into when you became a Jew. Not only by circumcision did you acknowledge that you would uh, submit to the law and keep the law, but you became a part of a society, a society that really took care of you from the cradle to the grave. Uh, or as Restland says it down the way, one call does all. And, and, and it was like belonging to an exclusive country club where all of the benefits were there for you. And when you left that, uh, when you embraced Jesus Christ and you left that system, then it might appear as though you've left all of these benefits and somehow you're sort of out on your own fending for yourself. Not only do we look at it in the light of, let's say, those alleged benefits that were left behind, but the price you paid. And, and I think probably all we need to do is cite uh, Paul, who we know and are introduced to as Saul in the book of Acts. But not only did you lose those benefits, not only was your card taken back, as it were, 
But now you are put on the, the list of those who need to be dealt with. And it would be sort of like leaving the mafia. Somebody was going to take care of you. And Paul was more than willing to do it. So Paul makes it clear he was a violent blasphemer. It was his job to deal with people who became apostates so far as Judaism was concerned. And he went about arresting people, putting them in prison, and consenting to the death of people. So when you think about what it involved for someone to leave Judaism in those days, the benefits they forsook, and the, 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 in a sense, the danger that they brought on themselves, it was, it was significant. And I believe that those who were tempted to fall back had these things heavy on their mind. What am I losing? If I were to go back, I would gain these benefits. And I would certainly turn off the persecution. Remember Paul says in late uh, Galatians chapter 6, he says, they're seeking to circumcise you, circumcise your flesh, because they don't want to take the heat for not doing so. In other words, when you cross Judaism, you enter into tough waters. You're going to pay a price. And and so I call this uh, section, the price is right. What the writer is doing is he is trying to take these these benefits that were there in Judaism, plus, if you would, the let's call it the curses and the blessings, to use Old, Old Testament terminology. you got the cursings and the blessings that are on this side, and what's going to happen is that the writer is going to play those now against what does it that Christ, what is it that Christians have that balances, as it were, the sheet and tips the scales the other way so that Christians gladly leave those alleged benefits and they gladly bear that persecution because of what they gain over here. I believe that that's what we see in chapter 13 and it really spelled out by the word better, which should be no surprise to us. So think about it this way. When you, uh, when you think about this uh, association into which one enters, this society and culture that one embraces with Judaism. When you leave that, what do you get? Well, verses 1 through 6 say, you enter into a brotherly love community. You enter into a community that cares for one another. Not just when things are going well, but it visits brothers in prison. It, it, it identifies and, and, and helps out those who are being persecuted for their faith. It holds marriage in honor. It's generous with its money rather than hoarding money. And uh, lest you think that you're put out in the cold and forsaken, then you are reminded we have a God who will never leave us nor forsake us. The point is this. You don't lose when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you gain. It's better than what you left uh, behind. There's better leadership uh, that you see in, in verses 7 and 8. There was a much more intimate relationship between the leaders of the church and the leadership within the Judaistic system. They were far away and distant and removed as a rule from those who were a, a part of that, uh, of that group. You have a, uh, a better uh, meal in verses 9 through 11. That's going to be part of our text. And, and again, you have to think about the ceremonial rituals and all of the things that took place within Judaism 
and and somehow it was being portrayed we have all of this i mean with the sacrifices came the feasts and so on and here are these christians just gathering together getting together for lunch so to speak in their churches and he says we've got a better meal in fact we've got a meal that we can eat that the priests couldn't and we'll talk about that in a minute and then they've got a a, a better uh city that is outside the camp, and finally, better sacrifices. Now, uh, I say there, by the way, segues. Have you ever try to look that up in your dictionary? I mean, I, I, you know, you try S-E-G-W-A-Y. I want everywhere to find out how do you spell this word. I know everybody uses it. You really need to understand segues in order to understand what our the writer is doing as he works his way through. He, he plays out, he moves from one subject to another with really a fluidity that's not unfamiliar to us. You get a group of guys around, if you ever, or gals, but I, I only know the, the guy stuff. But, but, you know, you get a group of guys around and we start yakking about one thing and then somebody mentions a word or a subject and all of a sudden, whoosh, off you go to that subject, right? And then somebody brings something else out and whoosh, off you go to another one. There's segues. And probably the easiest place you see this is on the news, where you'll you'll have these links that go from one uh, part of the news to the next. And so usually just before the weather, just to see the easy ones, they'll say, you know, tornadoes up in, in Kansas, it takes out barns and houses and whatever. By the way, Joe, how's the weather down here? Segway. And that's really what the writer is doing. When he moves through this section, he's taking segues that lead us through. But don't miss the, the, the main point, and that is whatever you leave behind when you leave Judaism as a system, you gain when you come to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so it's, it's a far better thing to which Christians have come. Let's look at our feast uh, versus the uh, priest's forbidden food. This is a fascinating thing that's going on here. We'll go back for a minute, uh, and I said last week that we would come back to verse 9 today, but it begins with a general word of warning, and, and, and it, it comes out of verse 8 where it's saying, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. And if that is true, and if he is the revelation that comes from God, then there is no need for updates. You don't have Bible 1.2, because we have it all, and it remains the same. The canon is fixed, and, and, and we don't have to have any improvements. If that is true, then any new and novel teaching that comes along that is not contained and rooted in Scripture is something that we ought to avoid. And so the author is saying, beware of the new and novel teachings that may come along. The way I've come to see it slightly differently this week from last is that the general principle is beware of strange and novel teachings. I believe that when he speaks of foods, he is just giving an example. In other words, all of the false teaching that is going to come the way of the church is not about dinner. Some of us might think it would be, but it's not. And so he's saying, here, for example, uh, is is one way in which this would be true. There are teachings about foods, some of which would say, don't touch. 
uh, and especially given the Jewish clean and unclean distinctions. But there were also, it seems to me, uh, there were teachings that basically said, here are these ritual, uh, mystical meals, and you're better for having been a part of those. And, and so what he's saying is, no, it's not true. It's not true. The heart is strengthened by grace, not foods. So it's not about what you eat or what you do not eat. It is about grace. Beware. Now, food is the segue that he has. And now he will move along and say, as a matter of fact, now that we're talking about food, it, it may be implied or said within Judaism, we have the better meals than you do. We've got better food than you do. He says, actually, it's not true. And he has an interesting turn of events the way he plays that out. He says, we have an altar from which we can eat. Now, you've got to think in the Old Testament a priestly system where when one offered sacrifices, there would be a, a meal associated with some of those. And, and uh, the question is not whether the people can eat, but whether the priests can eat. And the priest could eat from almost any meal. I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a moment. But he's saying, we have an altar from which we can eat that the priests can't eat of. Now we've got to go down and think of the Old Testament background. When you look at the Old Testament, and especially probably Exodus and Leviticus, you will find that there were some sacrifices that, w- that an Israelite would make where they had a family meal that would go with that. So they would bring the animal, they would offer the animal, and the priest got his portion of the animal, and the family got their portion of the animal, and you had a meal. Now, the priest always got a portion of that meal. But you had the family got it, the Israelites got a piece of it, and the priest got a piece of it. Uh, and that would be, for instance, with the uh, peace offering. When you come to the, uh, the, the meals like the uh, sin offering and the guilt offering, the people didn't get a portion of that meal. Only the priest did. And so the priests would have to eat this, this portion of food that was theirs. They would have to eat that in a holy place, and it would be only for the priests and their immediate family and so on. It was holy food, so to speak, but the priests got that portion. So the writer here is saying, we are able to eat something that the priests are not. That was sort of a turnaround, because usually the priests were able to eat something the people were not. And that's when you come to uh, Leviticus chapter 6, for example, and Leviticus chapter 10, verse 18. In chapter 6, the, uh, uh, Moses is saying to the people, uh, for God, he is saying, when these uh, sacrifices are offered, the priests may partake of the meat that comes from those sacrifices. And here was the, the dividing line. Any sacrifice, generally speaking, any sacrifice that was made in which the blood was not brought into the Holy of Holies and sprinkled in the holy place, that was meat that could be eaten, their designated portion could be eaten by the priests. If it was a sacrifice where the blood was was shed and then that blood was taken into the holy place and sprinkled, they could not eat it. No priest could eat that meat. Instead, what happened is the hide, the flesh, you know, all the, the chuck roasts and, and T-bones and all that stuff, 
and, and, and the, the dung and, the, and, and all the insides, they were all burned outside the camp. So priests did not get a, a piece of the action. And in particular, I think, what we're looking at is the Day of Atonement that we see in Leviticus chapter 16 and, and especially verses 27 and 28. When the bull and when the one goat was sacrificed, the blood was poured out. That blood was taken in, you remember, after a a ceremony that preceded it. But it was taken in by the high priest and was sprinkled uh, for the atonement of the nation. That bull and that goat were taken outside the camp and they were burned. Uh, Everything but the blood was burned and no priest had a portion of that. So he's making the analogy and he's saying, even in the Old Testament, there was food that even the priests could not eat. But the priests were able to eat certain things, many things, that the average Israelite was not. He says, we have a sacrifice, we have an altar with a sacrificial meal and it's one from which we may eat but not the priests. So here's what he's saying is, If you were still a part of official Judaism, and in other words, you had rejected Jesus Christ as the Messiah and rejected his shed blood, then they could not partake of the altar, we would say, from our our point of view. They could not partake of communion because they had rejected the the reality of which the, the bread and the wine are symbols. But, he says, we as Christians... We may partake of that, and we all partake of it without restriction. And and here's the interesting part of that. Not only can we partake of the body of our Lord symbolized by the bread, we may partake of the blood, and nobody, nobody partook of the blood in the Old Testament. So when Jesus says in John chapter 6, you know, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will have no part of me. In a sense, the writer to the Hebrews is saying that in reverse. And he's saying, those who have embraced Jesus Christ as their Savior, as the Messiah, they may eat the flesh, spiritually speaking. They may drink the blood, spiritually speaking. But no Jewish priest can do it. So the question is, who's got the better food? The Jewish system or the Christian who's come to faith in Jesus Christ? So the food is better that is served, so to speak, on the altar of sacrifice, the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's look at this uh, theme outside the camp. What he was saying, he picks up the words, and here's another segue, outside the camp. He says that, that anything that was taken outside the camp and was burned was obviously something that could not be eaten by the priests. But now he says, outside the camp. Now, that's an interesting thought. Let's go that way for a little while. And that's exactly what he does. So he says, therefore, verse 12, to sanctify the people by his own blood, Jesus also suffered outside the camp. Now, what he's doing, of course, is picking up this theme. And he's saying, when Jesus was crucified, as it were, he was crucified outside of the city gates outside of Jerusalem and all of that official system, he was taken outside the camp in order to bear the penalty for our sins. Now he says in verse 13, 
If then we are to draw near to him, where will we go? See, Judaism said, if you want to draw near to God, you come into the camp. You come into Jerusalem. You come into the temple. You come into these ritual uh, sacrifices and so on. But the author is saying, Jesus, to save us, went outside the camp. If we are going to draw near to Jesus, we have to go outside the camp. Because that's where he is. And we must go bearing his reproach. Not only must we go where he is, we must endure what he did outside the camp. And that was to accept the rejection of men as well as the wrath of God that we talked about this morning. Now, let's talk about outside the camp for a minute because that, again, is a significant Old Testament picture that is being drawn for us. And the author is picking up on that theme and expects us to understand how that works. Now, there are a lot of texts that would that would be talking about outside the camp, so I'm going to give you the cream of the crop, as it were, and just give you samplings of what it meant to, to think of outside the camp. When you have the, uh, the man who cursed God and he was executed, he was taken outside the camp to be stoned. When you have the man in Numbers chapter 15 who gathered wood on the Sabbath and it was determined that he needed to be executed, but it needed to be stoned outside the camp. So we would say, so to speak, the electric chair was outside the camp. People were executed outside the camp. Does that not make sense? It's the unclean part. Why would you do it in the city, in a sense, with the defilement that came, not just with death, but with the sin that was associated? Lepers had to go, if they were diagnosed with, their, with leprosy by the priest, they had to go outside the camp and remain there until they were pronounced clean. And I mentioned as an aside, when Miriam, remember, got into her trouble, Miriam and Aaron, and, and said, you know, who does Moses think he is? We're, we're siblings of his. Why can't we be equal in power? And, uh, and God gives Miriam leprosy. She goes outside the camp. Uh, God grants her wellness, but she's going to go outside the camp because that was unclean, what she did. Uh, And then, if I may say so, and I think I have to, the bathrooms were outside the camp. They were. If you look in Deuteronomy, you you took a shovel. They had a a, a probably a little different way of doing it than we did. They didn't have porta-potties and whatever, but you took a shovel and you went outside the camp. It was unclean. So outside the camp was always looked upon as something that was not, it was not a status symbol. It was just, where's your house? Outside the camp. You know, yeah, it was the ghetto, folks. That was not, that was not Snob Hill. And so all of this is the backdrop except for one text. And that's the text that is so significant. And that comes to us in Exodus chapter 33. Remember that? In Exodus 32, Moses is on the mountain. The Israelites, I don't know how hard, how hard they had to work at it, but they got Aaron to make him a golden calf, and they, they rise up and eat and drink and play and, and do all kinds of bad things. And, uh, and God's not sure, he says to Moses, how he's going to deal with that. He was, but of course he's testing Moses, and, and Moses says, you've made a covenant to these people, and, and you, need to, you need to keep your word, which of course he did. But... When God was going to have, this is before the, t- the tabernacle was built, when God now is going to enter into relationship with his people, primarily through Moses, the mediator, where did Moses go? He took a tent and he pitched it 
outside the camp. And remember it says, Moses would go outside and all the people would come and they would stand at the entrance to their tent and they would watch him. And it said, anyone who wanted to draw near to God had to do what? Go outside the camp. That's the place where God would meet with men. So you have this interesting little picture in in, in the midst of a sea of unclean imagery when it comes to meeting with God in the place of your, as a sinner, how does it work outside the camp? And, and so this picture plays out with our Lord Jesus who has gone outside the camp. So now look at this, uh, at this last verse in verse 14 where he says, for here, that is, outside the camp, I mean, I'm sorry, for here on earth we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now, it seems to me that he's sort of playing off outside the camp when, when you have Exodus 33 and these other instances in the Old Testament sense versus outside the city where Jesus went outside the gate. So now the city of Jerusalem represents everything good that Judaism has to offer that Christianity, in effect, walks away from. So what he's saying is, when we are here on this earth, we don't have a city that is worth fighting for. We don't have a city that's worth clinging to. In in a sense, inside the gate is a ghetto. The city for which we look, and he's been preparing us for this, especially in chapter 11, we seek a heavenly city that is laid up and waiting for us and is secure, we have a heavenly city that we embrace and that's where our hope is. And so what big deal is it for us to move out of the ghetto to wait to move into the city rather than to cling to that? Now, remember these people probably are being addressed before the fall of Jerusalem. Even if they had moved in and possessed the city, they wouldn't have been there long and they may not have lived through it. Very likely they would not. So that city was no great thing. So here they are. Remember the disciples looking out from the Mount of Olives, looking over to the temple and saying, Oh, what beautiful stones. And, you know, They're just all wrapped up with the city. And Jesus says, Forget it. It's not going to be there. We have a better city than they have. And that, I think, is outside the camp. Better sacrifices. Verses 15 and 16. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of our lips, acknowledging his name, and do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. See, if you're outside the camp, if you're outside the temple, and you're outside the system, then you don't have access to that sacrificial element. Now, I remember that Paul in the book of Acts was eager to get back to Jerusalem for Pentecost and whatever. But there came a point in time where Christians were not going to be embraced or allowed in, in in the instance with Paul's arrest and his trial. The issue is whether he brought Gentiles into that place that would be forbidden for them. But sooner or later, Christians are not going to be welcome there. If you can't go to the temple where they offer the sacrifices, then do you have sacrifices? And what he says is, yes, we do. And our sacrifices are better sacrifices than those of the Old Testament uh, system. 
And by the way, the author's already made it clear. Those sacrifices were offered over and over, year after year. If they had worked, you wouldn't have to do it over and over again. It was not the great sacrifice of all time to leave the sacrifices. Look at this. There are two sacrifices. Now, I have to confess to you that I don't think any commentary I've read boils it down to two. I've seen four, and in one commentary it's four of one kind, and another it's a, a different set of four. I see two sacrifices, uh, right or wrong. The first is verse 15. The sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of our lips, acknowledging his name. Now, I suspect that most of us, including me, when we read that, we think of church. And, and yet, I, I don't... I don't want to be um, flippant about this, but 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 going to church and saying hallelujah is not really much of a sacrifice in terms of cost. It's it's not really a sacrifice. I, I mean, the reality is when you do something great in church, somebody may applaud, folks. It, it's when you praise the name of Jesus outside the camp. <laughs> now you're going to find a different response. And it will be a sacrifice. So as I understand the text, it is praise, but the key term is acknowledging. Or I think your translation might say confessing. And that's a great word. And it's talking about that which we freely and voluntarily and joyfully offer up. Okay. If you look at the word confess, the word that is used here and translated acknowledge uh, in, in the Net Bible, look at some of the ways it's used. It says in John chapter 9, verse 22, and this is the context of the man born blind when the parents are saying, hey, don't ask us. We're not, you know, we're not going to confess to anything because they knew what it w- meant. The text says that they had decided, the Jews had decided anyone who confessed Jesus was out of the synagogue. See, there you already have this whole thing. You acknowledge Jesus, you're out of the system. You're on your own. Uh, in John 12, uh, 42, it says this, Many of the rulers believed in Jesus, but they would not confess him for fear of the Pharisees. Confessing Jesus was publicly acknowledging your trust in him as the Savior in a context that was going to cost you for doing so. And that's why a number of them did not at that point. When you come to Acts chapter 24 and verse 14, Paul is standing before Felix. And if you look at that whole verse, basically what Paul is saying is, okay, Felix, let me give you my confession. I am one who trusts in Jesus Christ. Now, there's a few other things added in there, but the essence of it is I trust in Jesus. They're right about that. The accusation of saying I'm a follower of Jesus, they're absolutely right. I confess Well, that wasn't the time again for the flags to get waved and people to give him a pat on the back. And uh, eventually, you know, it cost him a lot. Confession, therefore, as I see it, is the praise of God, the public praise of God in the midst of unbelievers. In other words, it is our testimony. It is our testimony. It is our witness. And what I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. Evangelism, as I see it in the book of Acts, is the outpouring of joy 
and delight and satisfaction in the salvation that Christ has given, I do not see anybody in the book of Acts saying, oh my goodness, we got the Great Commission. You know, we got, let's go. We'll hand out some tracts. You know, we'll do this. It's people going out. When, when, when the Christians are scattered because of the persecution of Stephen, the death of Stephen, and they go out about, nobody said to them, now, let's form mission societies and, and let's, let's get this job done. People went out and you see at Antioch what happened is generally speaking, because of the Jewish f- emphasis, people went out and they spoke only to Jews about the Jesus, the Messiah. But the people at Antioch were so excited, they didn't care what color you were or what culture you came from. They just talked about Jesus anyway. And a bunch of Gentiles get saved, and the church in Jerusalem says, what do we do with this church? Well, they sent Barnabas because he could deal with things like that. He rejoiced when Gentiles came to faith. But my point is, when you are professing the name of Jesus in that way, you are witnessing, but nobody even thought of it that way. Nobody said, we're evangelizing today. We're going to go out and knock door to door. They just went out and overflowed Jesus in praise. And other people said, wow, I'll take that. Oh, okay. And and so that's, I think, what's, what's being talked about. Professing Christ in a public, joyful way that is really evangelism. Secondly, the sacrifice of doing good and sharing. Now, you'll notice I said up in the first one, word. You've got the, the confessing with your mouth, but you also have the practice indeed. That's the twofold part of the, of the gospel. Loving God and loving your neighbor. How do you love God? You praise God in the midst of people. How do you love your neighbor? By doing good in the name of God to those people. So your words and your works come together to give real thrust to the, uh, to the message. Think about Titus chapter 1 verse 16. It says, they profess, that's the word, they profess to know God, but with their deeds they deny Him. What the scripture says here in Hebrews is, we are to profess Christ by praising him in public and our deeds are to be consistent with our profession. All right, let's talk about some things in conclusion. I'm going to insert one above point A and I don't know how you'll do that. I just drew an arrow and live with it. Uh, I was at a, 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 a seminar in, in Houston and uh, Jack Turpin, who at least was and may still be on the board of Dallas Seminary. And by the way, he had a duct tape Bible, not a f- one you buy that way. It was so worn out, it was duct taped all over the place uh, because he, he, like me, he couldn't let go of the one with all the notes and the stuff in it. And uh, he made this comment because it was in a, it was a, a Christian uh, university and, and uh, it was a, a business conference. And he said, no man should own a business if he can't read a profit and loss statement. He said... For those of you who are starting, are going to start a business, you take accounting because you need to read profit and loss statements. He said, all these companies that have got themselves in trouble, the president of those companies didn't know how to read a profit and loss statement. By the way, that's me. I don't. He didn't know how to read a profit and loss statement, and somebody had to tell him whether they were making money or losing money, and that's how they got into trouble. What I'm suggesting to you is this is saying to us, 
We need to do a spiritual profit and loss statement. What do I lose for forsaking, whether it's the Judaism of that day or the particular religious system that I've grown in or whatever? What are the costs for leaving that behind and what are the uh, profits for identifying with Jesus Christ? And i got to tell you, the balance sheet, you'll never go broke with Jesus. That's what this text is saying. It's always better. A better community, a better sacrifice, a better leader. It's it's all wrapped up in in our Lord Jesus Christ, a better meal. Uh, Okay. When we come as believers every Sunday to remember our Lord's death and to partake of these elements, we're sitting at a better table. We're sitting at a better table. And we, by the symbols we, of which we partake, we are able to do something no Old Testament saint ever thought of doing. And that is, in a sense, becoming a participant, partaker of the blood of Jesus Christ that saves forever and cleanses from sin. So we have, we have better food. Every Sunday, we have better food. McDonald's, steak and ale, you name it. They'll never touch it. Outside the camp. This is really, really a significant uh, area that could take a lot of time, I think, in reflection. What is our camp? Well, I think I would say this. Sometimes the camp is a negative camp. When Jesus went outside the camp, that is, outside Jerusalem, he went outside of a city and a system that had clearly and officially rejected him. Would you not agree? Uh, he left, he departed, he removed himself from that system because he needed to die as the, the savior of the world. So there is a sense in which we have to come outside the camp that we may have been a part of but will reject us because of our faith in, in the Lord Jesus. When, when the, the elders of CBC, uh, some of them, and the elders of McKinney got together, uh, they asked for the wives of the elders to share their testimony. And it was interesting to hear the stories of, of the different kinds of background people had. And some really did experience some backlash to their coming to faith in Jesus Christ. But nobody experienced that I know of, or not many people that I know of, experienced the kind of backlash that is common in this world. You remember our, our brother that was with us just a few weeks ago and, and, and shared how he had come to faith out of Islam and how his family and, and associates were obliged to kill him. And even today, years later, that is still true. And as I've said before, and others have told me, I'm not aware of any Muslim background believer, a convert from Islam, who doesn't think they're going to die for their faith. Folks, whatever it is we think we're going to pay, we are really wimps in the category of big league suffering. And, and those people, when they come outside the camp, They understand Hebrews far better than we do because they will pay a price. It's it's your your social environment. It's your employment. It's your security. It's everything. It's your honor. And when you step outside that and you identify with Christ, you really do enter into his shame and, and his reproach. I know of people in this body who have come out of uh, religious denominations and systems where when they left that system, 
they tasted, not to the degree that one would from coming out of some other foreign system, but they tasted the rejection. And the reality is we need to come outside the camp. If we are in a camp where Jesus Christ is not the Son of God, he is not the only Savior of the world, the only means by which men may be saved, we need to come outside of that camp. We cannot stay a part of a camp that rejects Jesus. It's more comfortable in the camp, we think, but it's not safer in the camp. We need to come outside the camp. I want to turn this on its ear for a minute and say, is that the only camp from which we are to come? I was thinking about our Lord Jesus, and I know the author does not make specifically make a point of this, but there is a sense in which we may need to come out of a good camp, not just a bad camp. When Jesus came to earth to save us, and you read Philippians chapter 2, and you look at him in heaven with all the splendor and glory, is there not a sense in which Jesus left the camp, <laughs> you know, in heaven to come down and to accept the reproach and, and the rejection of men in order to bring salvation? So what I'm suggesting to us is it is possible that the camp for us is our church, our ministry groups, all of our activities. It's possible for us to stay in the camp seven days a week and just nicely avoid the reproach and the opposition that comes when we take our faith openly into a world that rejects Jesus, it's more comfortable to stay in church. Now, please, don't think that I'm saying don't come to church. I'm simply saying we are to come to church so we can leave the camp and go take Jesus to a lost world. And it will cost it is not the easy road, but the profit and loss statement says it's the best road. In our uh, meeting this morning, we had a, a couple of uh, uh, comments and concerns expressed related to uh, our political environment. And I would, I would, I, I don't, I want to express a personal opinion that may not be embraced by all the elders or, or any, everybody here, but I would say this. It seems to me that in some ways, Christians have looked at America as the camp. It's the place where we're protected. It's the place where we can, we can practice our faith without interference and whatever. And I don't know whether you and I are leaving the camp or whether the camp is just throwing us out on our ear. But, but what I'm saying to you is, we may have to come and have a paradigm shift in our mind and we may have to say to ourselves, you know, the camp isn't really what I thought it was anymore. The camp is not there to protect me. It may, I'm not saying it shouldn't be. I'm not saying people shouldn't work to, to make the camp better. I'm just saying, folks, the camp has changed if we look at it in that sense. And I think we have to recognize that. And from the standpoint of Hebrews, say, look, if that is the case, maybe it isn't the case. If that is the case, we need to come outside the camp because that's where Jesus is. That's where Jesus is. Maybe you haven't thought about it this way, but Jesus is not an American. And, and he's, not a, he's not a Puerto Rican. He's not... <laughs> Good for you. You, you. you know, you just have to recognize we live in, in a pretty small capsule. And, and uh, we need 
to be able and be willing to step outside of the safety net that we have nicely placed around us where it is dangerous in one sense, but it is the safest place in the world because he will never leave us nor forsake us. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we thank you for the Lord Jesus, how sufficient he is, how superior he is to the angels, how superior he is to the entire Old Testament system, fulfilling it, but vastly superior. What a much better priest he is, a priest who never dies, a priest whose sacrifice once for all provides sinners with salvation if they trust in him. Father, thank you for what he has done. And I pray that we might manifest love for one another and be a community that embraces those who were rejected for the sake of the gospel, that we'll encourage and support one another, but that we'll willingly go outside the safety net around us and publicly identify with Jesus. And through that, that people will come to know him and through our deeds will come to see that we are genuine believers. If there's someone here this morning who has never acknowledged their sin, their need of a Savior, then I pray that they would recognize that their sins have brought them under your condemnation. But the Lord Jesus has borne that penalty. May they trust in him for forgiveness and for eternal salvation. May they wait for him as the king who comes in all of his splendor and glory. May we look forward to that city and that day. In Jesus' name, amen.